After reviewing the play, the call on the ice stands. We got a goal! Okay, fellas, we are set to go. Let's go! We are kicking. Watch the blue! Yeah, yeah. There we go. Yeah, baby. Number 47 for Boston. Both guys, five minutes each for fighting! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! Please move it! The NHL 2021, should we drop the actual 20? Should we just call it the NHL 21 season, Josh? I've been battling with that. The year is 2021, so it's the 2020-2021 season or the 2021. <laughs> you know what? I, I think 21 is good enough for me. The new NHL season is underway, and Josh and I are here with another edition of the Scouting the Refs podcast. Notice how I just zip right over that. Let's yeah. just let's just eliminate that right out of the, <laughs> out of the gate, which we would not even worry about. This hockey's happening. The NHL is playing. Sure, we've had a few bumps in the schedule with COVID postponements and the like, but I'm happy we're moving forward. And 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 boy, do we have a lot to talk about this week. It's been a busy first week of hockey. You know, it's it, it was one of those moments, Todd, where the opening night I was excited hockey. He was back and it was a hockey marathon and man, you, you, you almost start to get fatigued of just this blur of hockey after hockey. And I'm, I'm excited that the season's underway, but uh, holy cow, it's been a, been a hectic start to it for sure. It absolutely has. We should remind you that the Scouting the Rest podcast is powered by Team Stripes. Check them out online, goteamstripes.com. They've got all your apparel, training tools, equipment, and much more, goteamstripes.com. To follow us on our social media channels, follow Josh at Scouting the Refs on Twitter, Instagram, and of course, you've already bookmarked the website, scoutingtherefs.com. To follow me on Twitter and Instagram, it's at Todd Lewis Sports. We have questions well, send them to us via email as well. Hey, ref at scoutingtherefs.com. We're a week in. We've had suspensions. We've had goal reviews by coaches, challenges, fines. We've had a complaint or two about the new whistles being used. I think that is a very full week. I, I, should we start with a little bit of the, the discipline and players that are lighter in the pocketbook, perhaps? Yeah, let's let's jump right in there. Obviously, player safety springing into action early on in the season. Lots, lots going on there and uh, lots of paychecks getting dinged. Yes. Jared McCann of the Pittsburgh Penguins is $10,000 lighter in the pocketbook for a, a flying elbow. I kind of went back and forth after watching this one a few times, but I think I would come down on the side. He probably should have sat a game or two. If if the elbow goes up, it was a, sure appeared to me to be deliberate, and I think he should have sat for that. I agree, Todd. I, I thought the same, and seeing the hit, thought for sure we'd be looking at a game or two, and, and typically hits to the head, which this elbow appeared to be, will come in with two or more game suspensions. And I agree with that. I thought this would fall into that. So a little surprising that they're they're classified it as elbowing and, and only went with the fine when that sort of head contact, especially when it looks like intentional head contact and a, a dangerous play with him coming into the boards like that, thought for sure that that early season sending a message would be a priority and the idea that we don't want these hits to happen in the game ten thousand dollars not a huge deal for him as much as sitting out for two games and sending that message that you know we're, we're going to be tight around headshots as the league typically is so i was a little surprised that it just came down to a fine with this type of offense i always think of maybe we need some sort of 
standard penalty. I, I know that each situation is unique and a little bit different and the circumstances change from game to game and team to team and player to player and all the rest of it. But if you hit someone in the head with an elbow severe enough to be penalized, shouldn't you get at least one game for that? I would think so. I would think that it would be somewhat easy, and I don't want to oversimplify things, but I think it would be manageable to draw that line in the sand of Mm -hmm. intentional head contact. However it gets there, if you are intentionally contacting an opposing player's head, which I'm not talking maybe a shoulder that caught a guy in a jaw on a late hit. I can see that we might say that's, that's a little tougher to say, was he targeting the head? In this case, McCann's elbow goes up. It's a headshot. I, I think to me, lumping that in as head contact, it may, it may be a legal check to the head's not the right word, but physical head contact or intentional physical head contact with a two-game minimum suspension should apply to a hit like this. And I think that's that's a kind of tiptoeing in that the league may be more comfortable with when you look at types of headshots we can get out of the game where you can find an opportunity where a guy raises an arm or, or does something to show that he's intentionally hitting the head, as McCann did on this play. Mm-hmm. I'm going to jump around a little bit because I want to go to a play now that involved Nick Dowd hitting the head of Eric Stahl last week. There was no suspension on this play, which really surprised me because I was expecting to see hearing coming up for Nick Dowd and then the the video about why he's getting a game or two, but there was no no penalty. And again, there sure appeared to be head contact here, and I think that this would have been deserving of the punishment. You and me both. Uh, we had the post typed up. <laughs> I, had, uh, I, had, I had started writing the article on the suspension to Nick Dowd for the high hit, the blindside hit at center ice, and blindside is no longer in the rule book as part of the criteria right. for penalties or suspensions. But this hit that appeared to be a late high hit that appeared to be targeting the head. You know, unfortunately it's a guy who has a a concussion history as well. So that's never a good sign to put in with that. But I I thought for sure that's the path we were headed down. I I started drafting it, left the placeholders in to see how many games it would be and then waited and then waited. And then there wasn't even a fine, which I, I, I thought for sure we would hear something. And then, Right. Word comes out that there will be no suspension and and the league's justification as reported by the Washington Post Samantha Pell was that they felt there was no clear evidence that the head was the main point of contact on that play. So this would be another example of we didn't inflict further penalty on the player nicked out in this case and here is why there is a written explanation but a video explanation would have been most helpful because all the video from clips of uh that i've seen on social media or on highlight shows and the like sure indicate that there was head contact there yeah i i agree and i think it would be a great opportunity for player safety who typically only release videos when a player is suspended but to do that Mm -hmm. for certain fines and and explain why was this a fine versus a suspension and for a hit like this when they're reviewing it and i don't want them to put a video out for every play they review because i know they are looking at dozens every night but for something like this that that looked like one that was definitely worth a second look and, and an obvious hit or resulted in an illegal check to the head penalty which it did albeit a minor call that they put out a video to say hey here's why this was not suspension worthy and i know it's more work on their part but we come back to the educational aspect of it of having players coaches fans broadcasters all understand 
the difference between a suspendable check to the head and a non-suspendable check to the head and, and you know pull that curtain back and understand the league's thought process a little bit more. There were a couple of other offenses that were pretty cut and dried that sticks or other infractions occurred, and there were further penalties in terms of fine. Elias Pettersson had kind of a hack and whack going with Sean Monaghan of the Calgary Flames. That was pretty warranted. It was kind of a dirty, nasty, late in the game. The result is already determined play from Nicholas Obey-Kubel of the Flyers, who had a dirty late shot in Buffalo. He got a fine. And how about Greg Patterson? Of the Minnesota Wild, oops, not so fast. Now the Colorado <laughs> Avalanche, he he got a fine as well. Man, what a what a day, what a day for Greg. He's getting hit with the fine, so he's five thousand dollars poorer. Then he gets told to pack his bags and head to Colorado. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> leave the check here, take your bags right. with you. Not a great day for him. I mean, he's going to a great team, so so good news. But I'm sure not the day he thought he would be waking up to there. And again. His, I would say, warranted, it's it's a cross-check to the player in the crease, one that came out of a hockey battle in front of the net. So it's still right. an illegal activity. It's still something that deserves a penalty. He didn't get penalized on the play. Uh, Jordan Greenway did. I think they got the wrong guy. But nonetheless, I think this is one of those situations where, okay, a hockey play went bad. You almost injured a guy. Maybe it's not enough for suspension. But this is where a fine makes sense. It's not that the guy went headhunting. It wasn't uh, a late high hit at center ice. It wasn't something that intentionally caused injury. I'd love for the NHL to tighten up on some of this cross-checking that's going on. We, we see tons of it to the back, to the front of a player uh, that's being allowed. I would rather they restrict that a little bit. But given the what the standard is this season and in seasons past, I get not suspending him for this one. This is where a fine's appropriate. Some of these other ones, though, I, I still think a suspension would have been in order. I would agree. This is the Scouting the Refs podcast. It is powered by Team Stripes. Check them out online. GoTeamStripes.com. Training tools, apparel, equipment, whatever you need. GoTeamStripes.com is how you get it. Since you mentioned an educational process, I, I kind of feel like we're at the stage a week or so into the season where... We've almost come back from summer holidays and you sit down and everybody forgets everything that they have previously learned because there have been a couple of posts and comments on, on social media and the like about what we thought were pretty straightforward rules. But maybe maybe now is a good time to do a little bit of a refresher. What do you think? I, I think so. Everybody thinks they know the rule book and everybody remembers it, but we, we don't always remember it correctly, especially if there have been some changes or a wrinkle or a situation that we haven't seen that frequently and, and we all forget what applies to a given play. So where should we start, Todd? What, where do we need the, the brush up on? Algebra? Calculus? Periodic table? Oh. <laughs> Please, no math. I was told there would be no math. So let's, let's try to go into something that's a little more clearly understood in terms of hockey rules. Well, there was one in the game between the Montreal Canadiens and the Vancouver Canucks where goaltender Braden Holtby lost his skate blade. We see this happen occasionally through the season. It's not that often it happens with goaltenders, but when it does happen to a goaltender, there are some that suggest, oh, the play should be blown dead immediately. But that is not how the rule works. And it was applied correctly in this instance with Braden Holtby. It was. And this is one of those tricky situations, Todd, where... You've got a rule book that specifically says something that is slightly different than the league standard for how this play is handled. So when it comes to a player losing their skate, 
We play on. It's no big deal. When it comes to a goaltender losing a skate blade, the rulebook says the same. 14.1 says no delay for equipment. Play shall not be stopped for adjustments to clothing, equipment, skates, or sticks. So adjustments. Are we considering a lost skate blade in an adjustment? Is a lost skate blade a safety issue? Like when a goaltender loses his mask, the play can be blown dead if it's not an imminent scoring chance. This is one of those that kind of falls in between there. NHL Director of Officiating Stephen Walcom has weighed in on that in the past and said the refs are going to use common sense. And they do. And they follow some of the guidelines that we see for similar plays where a goaltender loses his skate blade. When his team gets possession, they're going to blow the whistle. Once that defending team gets control of the puck, they can kill the play. But the goal is that the officials do not disadvantage the opposing team. Now, that might mean that a goal gets scored because... If the attacking team maintains possession, there's no whistle, the puck goes in. I know Bruins fans were furious when it happened with Tuka Rask in the past, and they were going for a whistle, and I remember the official yelling, I can't blow it, you guys have to get the puck. They've got the puck, I can't kill the play. And that's where we're at with goaltenders losing their skate. So once the team gets possession, we can stop play, but when the other team has it, there's no justification for the ref to blow the play dead. And typically, because a lost skate isn't really a safety issue, they're not going to stop it. That's right. I mean, the goaltender might be flopping around like a fish on the ice because he's only got one skate blade and he would essentially be pushing off into a circle. But as, as long as it doesn't become a safety issue, as in the blade is flying through the air or something sure. really crazy, goofy like that, then there is no need. He's, he still has his mask on, still has his gloves. He can protect himself and he can attempt to make a stop. But I understand completely how you do not penalize an attacking team that has possession of the puck and the potential to score a goal. Right. And we look at other rules in the NHL that are the same way. I mean, even the, the lost goaltender's helmet, if there's an imminent scoring chance and the other team has the puck, they're not going to blow it dead right away. They're going to let the conclusion of that play take place or a change in possession. And we even see it on delayed calls, right? You don't want the team that's causing the issue to disadvantage the other team by virtue of that issue. So because you lost your skate, you can't take away the other team's scoring chance. So I, I get it. I think it makes perfect sense. But again, yes, common sense of the officials in this more than, you know, pointing to rule 14.1. Understandable. OK, so let's stay in the goal crease area. And in a game recently between the Los Angeles Kings and Minnesota Wild, the net became dislodged from the post when a goal was scored. However, after review, it was determined the puck had crossed the goal line before the net became unseated. So, as per rule, this is a good goal. But it sometimes happens very quickly. But as long as the net is in position when the puck crosses, we're okay. Absolutely. If the net's in position when the puck crosses the line, it's going to be a good goal. And that's something that the league will be checking for. This isn't one of those situations where we can look at a coach's challenge. A coach cannot challenge that. This is league review on did the puck cross the line and did it completely cross the line before the net was dislodged. If that happens, it's all good. It's a goal. We don't have to worry about it anymore. If the net was dislodged before the puck crossed the line, then we have to look at why the net was dislodged or how it became dislodged. If it happened because of a defending player, the goal may still count as long as the puck crossed between the normal position of the goalpost. So we've had situations when a defending player knocks the net off, the net is careening backwards, but because the puck had already been shot, the goal counts, even though the net might be nowhere near where it should have been. So 
as long as the puck is over the line before the net comes off, that's the simplest case. And if it's anything more than that, the timing of the net coming off is going to depend on who actually pushed it off of the pegs. Well, that certainly sounds like a simple enough explanation to me. No, no, it, it, it does actually make sense, though. When you, when you, if you stop and slowly think of it, it does make sense. It depends on who knocked the net off the pegs, what state it was at, and that does make sense because if the defending team bumps it out of the way, then, again, the attacking team should not be penalized because of that. Right. Now, just have a whole bunch of players from both teams crashing the net together and figure out which body was responsible for displacing the net. <laughs> yeah, okay. That Therein does, uh, lies that the does complicate things a little bit. You're right. Okay, so here's another one that, again, there is a bit of interpretation, I believe, involved, and that is with too many men on the ice penalties. Now, simple enough, players change on the fly on a regular basis. It becomes a little more complicated when the puck is passing in the vicinity of the player's bench and a change is going on. And if a player becomes contacted or is struck by the puck as the line change is taking place, there can be more than six players from a given team on the ice at one time. It's how involved they are in the play that is key to this, isn't it? That's exactly right, Todd. You hit the nail on the head there. And I think we've seen fans, I've seen broadcasters losing their minds about too many men on the ice when there's seven or eight players on the ice. But as long as they're within five feet of the bench and they're not involved in the play, they, they do have that leeway when making a line change. So sometimes, yeah, you will legally have eight guys on the ice. If the puck comes over there, though, those guys have to be very careful not to get involved in the play because they are permitted. I don't want to say permitted, but if the puck does contact one of those players accidentally, they're struck by the puck, there's no penalty. They don't stop play. They play on. So now not only are you doing a head count, but you're actually trying to watch as the puck gets near those players. Is this an accidental contact? Is this an accidentally on purpose where a guy is slowly putting his stick down and skating to the bench to try to intercept the puck? So that's where you get into that area of a judgment call of saying if the puck contacts no one and no players interfere or even pick or get in the way of an opposing player, then then we're all good. But once somebody skates in front of somebody else on their way to the bench or contact is made between the puck and the player, then it's on the official to make that judgment call of of was this accidental or was this intentional or accidentally on purpose to try to prevent the puck from going the other way. And occasionally you will see a player who is pretty sharp and smart and understands what's going on, and they will fire the puck at an opponent's bench if there are seven or eight guys on the ice. (laughs) Hey, it's worth a shot, right? All you need is one of them to react to the puck coming in and, and either play it or deflect it or move out of the way. And uh, maybe, maybe you get the benefit of the call there and get your team on a power play. So yeah, there have been some enterprising players who've tried to do that, just like the ones who fake the dump in and shoot it on goal in hopes that the goaltender yes. moves out. It's, it's a low percentage play, but the times it works, it works well. Okay, and one other area that I think we could use a little refresher on, because again, it's early in the season. Sometimes you see a play and you think, how can that count as a goal? Doesn't the puck have to go directly off a stick? into the net not necessarily you can't kick the puck in of course it can't go in off your glove directly into the net however we have seen pucks that deflect or glance off a a stick 
And it was Zach Whitecloud who hit Chandler Stevenson in the Vegas, Arizona game a few days ago that counted for a good goal, struck him in the in the back and went into the net. It wasn't directed in. It wasn't kicked in. It simply struck another player and deflected in. That's a good goal. Absolutely. It's it's one of those things that we've seen in hockey forever. And there have been guys who've made entire careers out of it. Like I, I think of Adam Graves of the New York Rangers, who was a, a pylon in front of the net and pucks bounced off of him and went in. I, I think the guy scored more than 50 goals one season. And I, I think he joked at one point and said that he'd be lucky if half of them went off of his stick. So sometimes <laughs> that's all you need is to to be there and be something that the puck can deflect on. As long as you're not propelling it in or or directing it, it can go off any part of your body and, and into the net. And that's perfectly fine. We've seen it even with skates where it's, you know, the distinct kicking motion is what we're watching for here. But to actually turn your skate to create that angle for the puck deflect in on is permissible as long as you're not propelling it when you turn your skate. So there are some criteria that allow the puck to go in off a body, off a player in front of the net, and, and it would be a legal goal. Just don't have it go directly in off of the official's body and we're okay. Ah, uh, yes. But again, if much like the, the play around the, the benches when players are coming onto the ice and some are exiting, if a puck strikes an official and takes an advantageous bounce to an attacking team, that player can shoot it directly in the net and it's considered good because officials are in play, correct? Yes, absolutely. So if, if you're shooting the puck in, you can play it off of the official as long as it doesn't go directly in off of that referee or linesman. So we, we've seen a few times when the puck has entered the net right off of an official and it's waved off because those goals yes. won't count. But after that puck hits the official, who is, as you mentioned, in play, uh, the attacking players can do whatever they want with it. So it, it, it's not a situation where we ever blow the whistle for a puck hitting an official. They are very much in play and, and have been so far this season where we've seen a couple officials getting in the way of pucks leading to goals. And it happens. You know, we've got four extra bodies on the ice that aren't actively participating in the game that are doing their best to stay out of the way. But there will be moments, whether it's a player shifting away that the official didn't expect or a shot going where they weren't ready for it to come in. Even the best positioned officials in a game can always get caught in a, in a tricky spot there, depending on where the puck or the opposing players are. But believe me, they're they're doing their best to get out of the way, too. So the fans that get frustrated when an official impacts the puck there, believe me, the, the official didn't want to do that either. Well, the official Dan O'Rourke, referee, actually, kind of didn't really impact the play, but he did impact the ice, dropping the puck at the at the faceoff in the Islanders-Bruins game because as he did so, he kind of went ass over apple cart and really hit the ice hard. Casey Sezikis was, was quick to check on him, but the play carried on, the play continued, and O'Rourke was fortunately okay. Oh, that was a scary one. You know, you never like to see a guy go down, especially when their feet get swept out from underneath of them because, you know, you're coming back on an elbow or a shoulder and uh, it, it doesn't look as bad as it could be depending on how you come down so nice to see that O'Rourke was okay I'm sure he was sore after that one but it was very nice to see Casey Sezikis pausing to check on the official you know just to make sure he was okay it had to be a little unnerving even for the other players out there when you watch a ref take a spill think that goes to show that there is, even if they do exchange words hostily and uh, rather emphatically towards officials, referees and linesmen occasionally, there is a respect for what they do out on the ice. There is. You know, they, they, they do have that. And historically, sometimes you'd see the, the officials and the players would chat away from the rink. And I'm talking decades ago and have those conversations at the bar. And 
these days, no, nobody's going to the bar at all, which is probably for the best because yes. having fallen on the opening face-off, O'Rourke would have been buying the first round. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that would be a definite one. Well, I, I feel much more educated. I feel like I've had the refresher course. I'm ready to dive into week number two of the NHL season. Let's get going. The Scouting the Rest podcast is powered by Team Stripes, your source for officiating equipment, training tools, apparel, and more. Check it out. GoTeamStripes.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Scouting the Refs podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at Scouting the Refs, Instagram at Scouting the Refs, and visit ScoutingTheRefs.com.